Hello and welcome to Top in Tech. I'm Colin Darcy, Senior Practice Director for Tech Policy at Global Council. This week, it's the latest in our monthly series of interviews with the leading thinkers and decision makers in technology policy across the globe. And I'm delighted this week to be joined by Dr. Santi Tan, Santiran Tai. Santi has a number of portfolios where he works on the moment, including the Future Economic Advisor to the Thailand Development Research Institute. He sits on the Monetary Policy Committee of Thailand, and he's also a senior advisor to Global Council. Before this, Santi served as the chief economist for the C Group, which is one of the largest technology companies in Southeast Asia. And prior to that, he was the head of Emerging Asia Economic Research at Credit Suisse. So Santi, thanks very much for joining me today. There's three broad areas that I'd like to cover in this discussion. The first is a bit of a scene setter. I'd like to get your insights on the economic and commercial dynamics of Southeast Asia, how these vary between what is obviously a huge and very diverse region, politically, culturally, and economically. And within that, how the tech sector in the region has evolved. The second is then to look at what has happened with US-China decoupling and what that means for the region, and very specifically there, the emergence of the, the so-called trend of reshoring and friendshoring, what that's meant for the economic landscape and for the tech sector. And then finally, given we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about regulation, but we do so in a very Euro-US-centric way, It'd be great to get your sense of where regulation has got to with the tech sector in the region and to what extent that is a priority for different countries in the region and where that's heading across Southeast Asia moving forward. So if that sounds okay to you, maybe we could start with the first of those three. And if you could just start off by giving me an overview of the economic dynamics of the region, both the trends across ASEAN and Southeast Asia but also some of those differences in, in the economic state of play between different countries. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me. And um, Maybe let me start by tackling the first question around the macroeconomic trends and the dynamics in region. So I think the first thing to say is that the Southeast Asia or sometimes called SEA as a region is quite unique among the emerging markets. So it's not your typical emerging markets. And it kind of have three things going for it, if you will. I think the three ingredients, first is the size, second is the growth, and third is this macro stability. So let me start from the kind of first one. Uh, it has you know, very significant size in terms of population, over 600 million across different countries. I think in terms of GDP, about 4 trillion US dollars, if you look at aggregate as a whole, it's probably top five of six in the world. Even Indonesia itself is projected to be the top four economies in the world by 2050 by Goldman Sachs. So definitely has kind of size, the market size would make it quite attractive. Second of all is it has this growth dynamics, which makes it very interesting. You look at a growth on average, GDP growth in, in real terms, which means you exit out inflation, grow around 4 to 5% a year. And you know that's including a period during the COVID. If you look at pre that, it's around five percent plus. It has FDI, the foreign direct investment, that coming in increase around thirty percent um, pre uh, compared to pre COVID. So it's been gaining market share in foreign direct investment. It is uh, rapidly urbanizing. 
So it has very strong kind of growth dynamics, and we can talk more about that in terms of different dynamics and in each different market. But number three is very crucial because when you look at emerging markets, I think you come to expect the size and the growth of middle class and urbanization. But typically what makes it difficult for businesses and investors is the stability side, where you have typically inflation problems, foreign debt problems, banking sector problems. And virtually, you don't really have any of that here, especially if you're focusing on the six largest markets in Southeast Asia, namely Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, Singapore, and Vietnam. They don't really have any of those typical emerging markets or frontier markets kind of stability problem. If you look at the foreign exchange, it's reasonably well-behaved. It has a lot of foreign reserves, which means when things go wrong, when there are shocks there ability to go into the coffer and kind of absorb that volatility. It has a very well-capitalized banking sector. They all have pretty low foreign debt. So if you look at the IMF type metrics, most of them would score really high. And the good reason for this, they went through a very, very painful economic, financial, and some extent kind of social crisis during the Asian financial crisis back in 1997, 98. And since then, I think they have been, they have err on a cautious side when it's under macroeconomic management. And so you kind of have got this pretty interesting region where you have good growth, good size, and also the stability, which is typically the trade off, which is not really, not, not really there here. But at the same time, you also have what exactly as you mentioned, Ronan, which is diverse, the very diverse region. I think what makes it different from, say, you know, LATAM or you look at Europe is just how diverse it is in each of the market. And you can look at it from a plus or minus side here. Let me talk from the kind of more positive aspect of that is that you can sort of pick different countries and different markets based on what you want to do. If you want to do a commodity themes, then you have Indonesia and Malaysia being the energy exporters um, to the world. Uh, Indonesia also has the uh, nickel, so green metals, which is you know really important for the EV kind of markets, batteries. If you want to do export play, export oriented small market economies, Singapore is prototypical of that, typically seen as a barometer of tr- global trade. Malaysia is part of that as well, Thailand to some extent. Uh, if you want a tourism play, you've got a Thailand, which see you know 40 million. Uh, visitors uh, coming to the country each year before COVID, that is, um, but it's recovering fast as well. And if you want a large domestic market, which are huge kind of rapidly urbanization going on, then you have Indonesia and Philippines. Indonesia population around 200 million, uh, Philippines around 100 million. So there's huge diversity around there, but it can also work to your advantage because you have a kind of portfolio of very different economies. But for businesses operating across this, and we, I'm sure we'll discuss more about this, it can be also very difficult because not only they have different culture, different language, different regulations and policies, they, they, even within country, you have a lot of differentiation. Tens of thousands of islands across Indonesia, they actually speak different languages as well and different dialects and slightly different cultures, subcultures as well. So. Yeah, opportunities, but also risks and challenges there. It's remarkable in the way that you 
talked latterly about the diversity, but then also that consistency to start with, that you have what sounds like a very solid, high-growth economic story, consistent. I'm sure there's lots of you know nuances between different countries, but a consistent story across the region, despite the difference in political systems, the, the cultural nuances, different different religious cultures, different different uh, demographics, and so on and so forth. So it's interesting that that story has sort of played out, and it does sound like the the financial crisis in the late 90s was was a defining moment for setting that, I guess you could call it the ASEAN model, so to speak. But I'm interested also from when you when you started talking about the different islands, and it brought home to me a debate we often have in Europe, but is clearly less pronounced than that, around digital adoption and problems you have with technology uh, being adopted across communities that are quite remote. And it, you know, it plays quite into that that question about the region and how do the what you've just described there with the tech sector sounds in one sense quite promising. You have you have large populations for tech companies to move in and potential digital adoption across demographics that presumably are quite young. But then you also have some challenges there if you have countries that are are quite diverse and quite spread out geographically, that seems to me something that's quite difficult to overcome. But maybe it'd be great to just get your sense of the picture that you've just spelt out to us, how that plays into the growth of the tech sector and the importance of the tech sector in the region. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's really important point. I I was kind of economist, you know, financial, uh, working financial institutions covering this region for a long time. And to be honest, that all the dynamics I've been telling you has been there for ages, right? And I think there was kind of one point back in the days where we saw to us that this is a market of great potential, but it always seems to be a market of tomorrow. And, you know, tomorrow never really comes. It's always tomorrow. So when is it, what's going to be the trigger point, which leads to sort of a tipping point that got the region to take off? And we start to see this rising purchasing power, rising middle class really play through. How do you play this theme? And it used to be such a pain point because the retail infrastructure is quite underdeveloped in this kind of large market like Indonesia, in the Philippines. So it's kind of hard to kind of untap into a lot of these stories. But I think that a lot of that has changed with the arrival of the digital economy. And, and that's what makes the region quite a uh, digital economy and the tech space quite interesting in, in, in this region. So if you look at the numbers, the I think from 2016 to 2023, so around eight years, you see about 8x increase in the revenue of the digital sector. So it went from, I think, roughly around 12 billion to over 100 billion, just reaching that number last year. So it's pretty rapid uh, increase. And you look at the biggest sector is e-commerce, digital financial service or fintech, transport and mobility which if you go back to your question is exactly the kind of things that comes in to help solve some of those problems right like being so spread out being helping very underdeveloped infrastructure and these are exactly the kind of things that they're going to that and but but it's also opportunity because that means there's so many underserved segments when it comes to financial services when it comes to retail when it comes to transport and traveling in general and, and digital kind of helps kind of unlock that. So the digital economy was doing quite well even before um, the pandemic. You know, I, I moved to this sector back in 17, 18. It was already quite vibrant, but it's kind of early stage. 
But what really kind of turbocharged it was the pandemic, actually. So starting 2021, what happened was that you see a huge increase in adoption. And I think you see this around the world. But in this region, it was less... It, it was less about just people spending more time online and more about bringing people who never used digital before into the digital realm. So if you will, the democratization of the digital access was kind of like the game changer. So if you see like, you know, post COVID, even though there's some dips in the digital activities, it didn't dip much. It's kind of got pushed to the new level and then kind of worked from that uh, going, going forward because it's quite a game changer. And I think the three dynamics to look at uh, when you see kind of that takeoff. First is consumer. If you look at a consumer side, as I mentioned, there's a lot of the underserved segments uh, in the region, in the country, in different countries. So you saw around 100 million increase in digital consumers that's being added to the region um, over the course of roughly three years. So right after the pandemic, you have this, you know, 100 million increase of new digital consumers. And when I say digital consumers, that means not just users. Users name is going to be even bigger than that. Consumers here defined as someone who has actually paid, bought something online. So the, the more sophisticated, more active ones. So those increase, and that include people living in a mountainous region, in a rural areas, in the remote islands in Indonesia, in the Philippines. All of these people have become digital adopters and users for the first time. And that's really quite, you know, that has broadened the base so much. And there's so much now that you're in the digital realm, you're digital users, consumers. There's so many things you can add on top, whether it's like healthcare, education, finance, and other things you can build on top. And once the consumers change, you start to see the businesses also changing. The large businesses, of course, can, you know, change and adapt to the digital realm pretty quickly. But even the small and medium scale enterprises in the past, probably dragging their feet a little bit, thinking that digital is something I'm going to do one day, but not today. But then during the pandemic, they didn't have a choice um, because con- all digital consumers are migrating there. So they, they, they went through the digital transformation process. We have seen a lot of digital adoptions among the SMEs, whether e-payments to digital solutions like e-commerce, to you know, even the kind of ERP and other software as a service kind of things happening there. So a lot of transformation on the business side. So you have both consumer and business side. And the last piece of that um, third piece is a government policy. The government policy during COVID has been very supportive, generally, or very pro-digital, if you will. So you can see different policies like in Singapore, Indonesia, where they would subsidize or trying to get the SMEs, the small, medium scale enterprise to help, dig- help them digitalize, give them some digital incentives so that if they have storefront, they will get extra incentives and so on and so forth. There are some government cash handout programs that will be delivered through like mobile wallets so that people increase digital adoptions using mobile payments. That's, I think, happened. That happened in Thailand, happened in Malaysia very prominently. And so this region allowed this region to kind of leave broad. The cards, the card penetration is very low in the region, but they just leapfrogged it straight to mobile payments, similar to what you have seen in China, I guess. And, and lastly, you know, around kind of pushing out different countries also came out with uh, digital banks, trying to push for virtual banks license, a digital bank license areas. 
So you can see a lot of government very been very pro digital during during COVID. That has has somewhat you know the balance shift a little bit in terms of being pro digital, but also regulating and minimizing the risk. We can talk more about later. But I think the three piece of consumer businesses and government has really you know, propel the, the growth of digital economy. And the digital economy has helped unlock all these kind of untapped consumers to bring them onto the kind of formal economies. The story you are telling, Santi, seems to be one of opportunity. And I think what's really striking is which companies have seized that opportunity and how that's different to the markets that I know best, which is obviously in Europe. So your point earlier about how the pandemic changed consumer behaviours, I think if we think about how that changed consumer behaviours in Europe, it changed their behaviours to be online more in the way that you talked about. But actually the sorts of companies that I guess benefited commercially from citizens going online, apart from say maybe Spotify, it probably was TikTok, which really took off in Europe during during the pandemic. It was companies like Netflix, obviously people were watching more at home. It was companies like Zoom and I guess Microsoft Teams and others, those sort of video conferencing platforms. But apart from Spotify, the consistency there is that all of those companies are not European. They're mostly American and obviously TikTok is based out of Singapore and with a Chinese parent company. So anyway, it, it's a non-European story in many ways about what happened in the, the habits of Europe. But what's striking, and you have a unique perspective as the former chief economist of the C Group, from a European perspective is just, I guess, not just during the pandemic, before the pandemic, but during the pandemic as well, is just how the region has homegrown companies that have been successful in seizing those opportunities of the the, the trends that you're describing that are beneficial to tech adoption is often companies from the region, not necessarily Chinese and US companies. It, it is companies from the region itself. So it'd be great just to get your your sense of, of that dynamic and from a very parochial European perspective, just to understand why you think it was that those companies were able to grow and prosper in a way that we haven't seen perhaps in Europe or other parts of the world. Yeah, no, that's a great question that I often ask myself as well. And, and just going to give a background to this a little bit. The last report I wrote before leaving um, the financial world and to join the tech world, join C Group at the time, was, I think it was called Hidden Tigers Meet Tech Dragons. And it was kind of described actually making predictions that the digital economy would take off in the Southeast Asia which it did. So that part was good. But I also made similar predictions that I thought it would be dominated by, you know, tech firms from China, which at the time was just start entering the region and to some extent the US, but perhaps at the time, I think I was predicting more China, hence the name Tech Dragons. And I did not quite anticipate that the local regional player or local players would fare so well. So I was wrong about that and so because I was wrong, I was kind of always kind of observing, trying to understand, you know, we, we wish, of course, at the time, it was a good thing to be wrong because I was uh, at sea. But I think, yeah, a couple of things that, that comes down to, I think we talk about this before, but I think partly, but I think one is it's the region is quite unique. And why may I want to say unique? 
it means that it is very different from the markets in the U.S. and also actually very different from China. I think from the U.S. is probably quite obvious, but you know, China, you can see there's some similarities. You know, very kind of mobile driven, pretty a lot of digital natives, quick adoption, willing to try different things. But apart from that, that some similarities. There's a lot of differences. To the extent that things that you can do well in China can really be replicated in Southeast Asia very well, and if you come in with a mindset that hey, I'm going to transplant some of the things that work for in, in my market uh, to Southeast Asia, that's that's very dangerous. You're very likely that will fail, and 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 it could I could give a lot of examples here, but for example, if you think. I think things in China, if you work with regulators, policies, it's you tend to get that if it works, then it, you know, things will. If you get approval, it will move things pretty quickly. Uh, in Southeast Asia, that tend not to be the case. Even if you get some approvals, it usually take a bit more time, take a bit more back and forth. You you work with one part of the government, the part of the, the other part of the government may, may not be okay, so you may have to go back and forth. So you have to kind of maneuvering around, have a lot of flexibility around there. Also, the tech, employing the tech, and I think this is based on a real case that I've come across, but I'm not going to mention any names, is that at the time, even though the Southeast Asian um, consumers are pretty open to digital world, they're not that tech savvy, especially the sellers, say, on e-commerce platforms. So if you start importing all these sophisticated features for them to do, they get overwhelmed. Their digital literacy wasn't that high. They're willing to try it. But once you kind of bring in a lot of this tech, a lot of these new features, they just thought, my God, this is too much. I don't know what's going on. I just want simple selling. I just want to be able to chat to my, my, my consumers. So you have to understand how much uh, they're willing to take. Uh, and that's different in, across different countries as well. So that's another kind of differences that you kind of have to really, really localize your solutions, whatever it is, whether it's down to the features, down to the behavior, to, to different markets, which is going to be different from China and different from the US. The second keyword is, so the first one is unique. The second one is diverse. So that part meaning that, you, let's say you found something that works in Singapore, you can't really transport that to Indonesia either. And what works in Indonesia may not work in Thailand either. So they're all very different. So you have to run companies like there's, if you talk about six largest markets, essentially it's six local businesses, uh, which may have some commonalities, common themes, but you have to be prepared to do a very different approach, different uh, strategy, different customer position approach and everything. And so you have to be very humble, I think, in, in kind of learning and not assuming that, you know, we know. We know we know what's best for them here, and and you know, there's a lot of examples around there. Like for example, when we come to consumer behavior, at least you know back then, brands, consumers like Singapore and Malaysia have a lot of trust, a lot of openness to brands, and perhaps somewhat less to kind of unknown long tail sellers, small medium scale enterprises. Whereas Thailand and Indonesia is almost opposite. They love these kind of long tail sellers, you know, some, you know, islands far away, this unique local products you can't find anywhere else, only produce a small batch. They love those kind of things. So 
you have to understand this kind of different nuance in different countries and different culture to get into that. Which kind of, if you bring all of that together, it's unique. You can't transplant the ideas, solutions from elsewhere there. You have to localize. And once you localize, you can't really take this across different countries in Southeast Asia as well. Then the question becomes like, how do you, how do you balance between the localization and globalization, if you will? Because if you just run local business in six markets, then it's not regional, you know, and then you don't have any scale benefits in economies of scale. So you had to kind of find the angle where there could be something that can scale and can share across a different parts, maybe talents, maybe, you know, some of the, the know-how, some of the payment solutions, some of the things. But otherwise, you have to do a lot of localization. And I think that's why it's so hard for businesses coming from other regions to kind of work in, in Southeast Asia. And you actually end up seeing the two types of, of business which work quite well. One is the, the true regional player, and, and you see was uh, one of them. And the other one is kind of the Indonesia-specific player. So really focus in Indonesia. And that's the main reason is that because Indonesia is large enough. So you can actually become unicorns and thrive, even though just focusing in Indonesia. So that's kind of the couple of reasons I string together to kind of explain this phenomenon. Just while we were talking, I was just trying to think through sort of what does that mean for my own analysis of of Europe. And I think in some ways, Europe's caught between being almost having some of that diversity that you've just described, but not anywhere near like the same extent, but enough diversity to make it difficult for smaller operators to go cross-border, despite the EU, to go cross-border is still quite difficult. You still have a lot of different languages and different cultures. So for small places, it's difficult. But however, it doesn't have enough localized diversity to make it too difficult for some of the big companies to come in. So in a sense, we're not different enough from the United States to make it too difficult for Google, Meta and others to have come in and to expand across all. They were all just able, because of their scale, to get over those differences that make it difficult for SMEs and startups across Europe to do so. So Europe's almost this victim of being somewhere in between that dynamic that you've just described. But Santi, I want to quickly push us on. And one of the big dynamics you've already talked about in the region that really changed the tech sector was the pandemic. But there's another one that everyone internationally, whether you're talking to people in Washington, D.C. or in London or in Brussels, are ever more interested in because of this focus on economic security, the supply chains, partly because of the pandemic, but also because of the U.S.-China decoupling. A lot of the supply chains that companies have had historically in China, they are reviewing as a result of a much more robust policy out of Washington, D.C. around sanctions. We've seen it in areas like semiconductors, for example, but obviously much more, much, much wider than that. And a lot of the dynamics that people have been talking about is, is the move of a couple of things. One is the Western companies, but also other companies moving their supply chains from China into the region, but also seeing some Chinese companies starting to move into the region and put HQs in the region as part of it, their international HQ. So a good example of that would be Bishayan uh, has got its HQ in Singapore. TikTok, which obviously doesn't operate in China, but is ultimately owned by ByteDance, has also got a, an international HQ in Singapore now. So we're seeing some interesting trends in the region. And I guess 
we end up looking at this from the perspective of what does that mean for the policy dynamics in Brussels, London and Washington, D.C., but we think much less about what some of those trends are doing to the region itself and the impact they are having. So I wondered if you might be able to share a couple of thoughts on that. Earlier on, you, you talked about how the region was gaining FDI share. So it'd be interesting to get a little bit of a sense of, is that being accelerated or is it because of this decoupling, reshoring, friendshoring dynamic that I've just described that you're seeing more capital flows into Southeast Asia? I think you're absolutely right in, in highlighting that's one of the key game changer. You know, we we're talking about how do you turn Southeast Asia from a market tomorrow to kind of opportunities today. Digital was one of them. And this is another one. This is a key one. And I think it explained why um, Southeast Asia has been gaining market share in terms of FDI in recent years. And it's really much across the board if you look at the sectors. But I think there's both kind of push and pull going on here. So the, the push is very much, as you mentioned, the themes of de-risking, diversifying capital. And apart from kind of friendshoring, uh, nearshoring, Another one is the China plus one, which I think is is quite a powerful uh, theme in in Southeast Asia, whereby some multinational companies would still have a China presence, but mainly to serve the Chinese markets and anything else international, the kind of factory of the world, um, exporting around the world, they would shift to one of the countries or two countries in Southeast Asia, sometimes along with India as well, I've seen around. So I think that that's definitely one of the kind of push factors that they have done that have pushed uh, Southeast Asia forward, but also there's a pull factor. So I think there's this kind of notion that the economic, the, the center of gravity in terms of economic growth has shifted eastwards towards Asia. And I, you know, being in the financial markets before have been living with this narrative for a long time, the rise of Asia and whatnot. But uh, in fact, for the longest time, the rise of Asia was re really what they meant was rise of China. That when the investors think it's only China and some extent, sometimes India, there was back then. So I think that has changed quite significantly in recent years where they still believe in rise of Asia, but they recognize that Asia is, is not just China. There's India, there's Southeast Asia, which are also very strong macroeconomic dynamics, which we have discussed in the first part. So I think that's a pull factor as well. So the rise of Asia is still on, but the risk uh, part also providing a push factor away from China into Southeast Asia. And you see kind of three types of FDI that, that's coming into the region. If we were to break it down a little bit, I think the first type is sort of the finding the new markets. So, you know, doing business in China for certain sectors is definitely more difficult than before. So we're going to look for kind of new growth opportunities, new market. And then that's, you know, where's where you're going to look for markets which has kind of big domestic markets. So that's India, um, but also Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia being a very, very prime example. But I think people also look at some parts and some sectors, like, for example, electronic vehicles in, in Thailand, Thailand being one of, one of the premier auto exporters and auto production in the world. So in certain segments like that as well. So that's kind of like, let's look at a large 
markets new opportunities to invest, to tap into the market with growing demand. The second type is a peer kind of de-risking of supply chains. So I'm not too interested in a domestic market. I just need a new location to place my factory so that I don't you know, get caught between the geopolitical risks and, and volatility. And that's what applies to this one probably more is the, the hardware stuff, the tech hardware. So you see electronics and EVs, uh, both electronics and EVs, uh, semiconductors being shifted to Southeast Asia more. The one which is, of course, you know, most famously known here is Vietnam, where they kind of built a lot of export base uh, there. And you can see very clearly in the data, you can see that Vietnam is exporting more to the US and to Europe, but it's also importing more from, from China. So what is happening is instead of China exporting directly to, 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 the, to the Western Hemisphere, uh, is doing that through Vietnam instead. So that's pattern you can see, see over there. But it's not just Vietnam. You also see that in Singapore. Even a, Singapore is a place not really known for uh, doing a lot of manufacturing production anymore. But it still actually has a space in kind of high-value electronics production. I think it's gained a lot of the, of the electronics kind of production value-added uh, activities uh, in the past few years as well. And uh, part of Malaysia, like Penang and the islands, uh, also gained that. So you kind of see this tech hardware pl- part benefiting from the, the risking of supply chain theme. And lastly, which you have mentioned, Conan, is the shifting HQ. So this is kind of like where I want to, if you compare this to a person, it's like, I want to change my nationality. You know, I, I want to I become a Singapore company, a Southeast Asian companies. And you, see, you also see that patterns where they just shift the whole HQ operations to be in different places. I think, and that, that usually has a big motivate, various motivation, but it's also a mix of both, a bit of kind of like shifting, finding new markets, but also kind of reducing the risks of being labeled and, and being facing some policy measures. So those are the kind of three types that you're seeing. The first type, the new market, I think is more relevant for the kind of platform, the software, and in particular, because after the tech crackdown that you've seen in China around kind of consumer platform, e-commerce, you've seen a lot more aggressive move into Southeast Asia um, from those markets, whereas the de-risking supply chain is more the hardware play. And Santi, just to pick you up on that final comment then, in the, how do you see that competition playing out? Do, do, we've talked about the robustness of players like Seagroup, but other big competitors in the region, if it's going to get more aggressive, do you think it is sustainable for those larger homegrown tech platforms to still prosper? Or do you think they're in more competitive environment that will be a bit more difficult in the future? And I know C Group is your former employer, so I have to <laughs> you have a certain perspective, but just interested in, in, in how, you, how, how you see that playing out. The competition would definitely be more intense. It already is, I think. And I think, you know, because a lot of the companies have shifted to the region, growing interest in the region. So there'll be more competition for sure. And it's already impacting some of the players. So I think the, at the end of the day, these competition going to breed stronger players so that the players, both locals and regional players, have to become stronger. And the new players that come in from, say, China or elsewhere also have to be stronger, rapidly evolving. I think the good thing about Southeast Asia is that there's still even... After all this rapid growth that we have seen, there's still a lot of undertapped opportunities and underserved markets everywhere. 
So you can always find new opportunities. If you talk about, for example, in a fintech kind of space, you can you can look at the space where you know perhaps payments is is there's a lot of competition there. Then they're going to start moving to credits, and then once the credits probably become very very competitive, then you can still move to investment, wealth management, insurance. So there's still a lot of undertap kind of markets that that you can go through. Just on that point, Santi, when I, when I've talked to colleagues in our Singapore office or others in the region, and we would say, so you know, when is Grab, when is Seagull going to make a big play in Europe or in the US? And the answer that they, they would often say back to us is that there's still so much opportunity and potential within the Southeast Asian region that actually that isn't going to be a focus in the near term. So it sounds like that's correlating with what you're saying there. Yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's somewhat probably. I can't speak for all the players there, but I think I can guess that for them, moving across some sectors within the Southeast Asian region is somewhat easier than replicating their success in core business in, in other countries. I mean, there's some exceptions. Of course, C Group is doing recently well in Brazil. But I think generally speaking, they would rather kind of look at adjacent sectors and moving into that and build the business which have a lot of synergies and ecosystem that help on each other, whether it's kind of, for example, e-commerce, logistics, payments, ride hailing, all this in connecting to each other in a region that they know already, rather than trying that, you know, in a brand new market. Let's conclude, Santi, moving on to the, the regulatory section. You alluded to some of this earlier on, and the the impression I seem to get from what you were saying is that Policymakers in the region are probably more focused on the digital adoption and incentivizing companies to digitize, I guess, as part of economic industrial strategy, than they are about focusing on the potential harms prompted by some of these technologies. Whereas in Europe and the US, there's clearly, it's not that sort of the policymakers aren't interested in the economic at economic growth side of things, but they do also spend a lot of time worrying and then ultimately regulating on the harm side, whether that's around online safety, data protection, or even the potential risks from artificial intelligence. So is that characterization correct? And I know, again, with the caveat, there's lots of diversity in the region, but broadly speaking, the focus is on digital as growth rather than digital as regulatory harm. I think it's always a dynamic process. And it's just that the Perhaps Southeast Asia is a little bit behind the the Europe and, and US here in terms of the sequencing. So I think you could say that you know in the US or, or Europe you already kind of reaps benefits of tech a lot, uh, and now you start to get to the point where let's see you know you start all this risk emerges and how to kind of control that. Whereas in Southeast Asia, um, b- because the digital kind of cycle and, and trends came a bit later, so they're still kind of um, earlier enjoying the benefits uh, for the first time discovery, you know, helping all these undertap consumers, undertap uh, small media scheme enterprises. So just still benefiting from that. So I think the government don't want to kind of pour cold water on that. Other governments around the region is focusing on adoption, promotion, innovation. But I, uh, it's a dynamic process. I have to stress that point because it, it's changing. It is changing. You start to see after kind of the big wave and promotion that you now they start to see kind of the downside or the, the risks that emerge from the rapidly digitalizing economies as well. And so 
you start to see some shift in the policy towards more regulation, more controlling risks, more consumer um, protections and, and different sorts. Um, but even when they turn towards more kind of control and more risks, the themes is quite different from Europe and, and, and the world, so to speak. And I think if you look at a region, um, this one, one theme that, that kind of come across, uh, come to my head when you look at them is that they tend to be a bit more economists would call kind of mercantilist kind of regulation. What I mean by that is that, or sometimes called a bit more nationalist. So it's less about regulations which start from the consumer side, how do we protect our consumers? And it's usually a little bit more focused on how do we make sure that our SMEs benefit, uh, they can protect, how do we make sure that we can export to the world and not just the importers of everything. So it's much more to do with helping the local producers, local startups be able to c- compete and somewhat a bit less on the consumers. If you were to compare this to kind of the Europe and, and you know, US, where it tends a lot of regulation tends to jump out of the consumer side. And so you look at the themes, uh, I think perhaps three, four themes really stood out recently. One is around misinformation. And that's a big thing. I think most countries already have some laws and regulations, but they have been stepping up the enforcement, if you will, and tighten up the, the, the screw a little bit around misinformation, spreading of misinformation. And I think particularly in some countries, which is just went through election, like Thailand went through election, um, and Indonesia is having general election this year. So of course, that's around the kind of, you know, where the hotspots are. Um, so that's around uh, misinformation. Second uh, theme, which is around online scam and cybersecurity. Huge problem in the region, um, everywhere. Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, a lot of pe- scammers um, using online links, take people's money. I think governments are, are struggling a little bit in the region to combat this problem, but that definitely is trying to come up with new ways. So kind of a, a sort of mouse, cat and mouse kind of game to catch the scammers, which is still kind of moving around. The third type is the protecting SMEs. So this is a very big, very visible move that we have seen uh, in the region. A great example of that is when Indonesia proposed the, the rules, or not, or not proposed, but enact the rules that the platforms have to separate their social media arm from the e-commerce arms. So you can't really do a social media and, and then, then complete all the transactions in, in one platform. You have to have two different apps. Uh, of course, that you know will hurt, uh, as you know, uh, certain firms more than others. But um, that was, I think, very much uh, motivated by the fact that they fear that a lot of the e-commerce, some some e-commerce platform, a social commerce platform, would result in a lot of imports of cheap products into the country, and that would wipe out the small and medium scale enterprises in the in the country. So it is very much motivating around protecting the SMEs. Malaysia doing something. Uh, along that line as well, where I think it's considering taxes on low-value goods, which they think you know will compete directly with the SMEs in the country. And, and lastly, is around tax, and I think this is kind of motivated by because the fact that they they went through COVID, they spent a lot of their government resources trying to revive the economy. So the government debt is higher, the tax revenue is down. So naturally, they're looking for ways to raise revenue. 
And they've seen that, wow, digital economy seems to be thriving, seems to be doing well. We have a lot of uh, sellers, a lot of creators that are making a lot of money, but they are kind of outside the tax system. So how do we bring them inside so we can generate more revenue? So you can see different kind of moves. Again, uh, sometimes they would ask platforms to collaborate to help report some of the revenue or incomes from different players on there to in order to raise more tax. So those kind of like four themes, which uh, at least in my, my limited understanding, I, I think is very different from kind of like the debates that you have in, a, in Europe or US right now, right? Yeah, it's interesting. When you were talking about how it's easier for some of the big players in Southeast Asia to, rather than expand internationally, you, you, you can shift within the tech sector and often and offer different products and services. The thing that was in my mind at the time was that you have the Digital Markets Act coming in in Brussels, you have some the Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill going through Parliament in London at the moment, where regulators would look very dimly on that process happening, having seen the Googles and the Metas of this world having done that in the past. And I was, it was interesting to then hear you talk about how Indonesia was then splitting between the two different app system on the e-commerce and the social media side. So in funny way, that there are differences in the way that they're thinking about it, There's, but they have ended up in similar conclusions, maybe through different routes in certain areas. But I think that you, you're right, that the focus between consumers, and I guess a very rights-based approach in Europe in particular, but also in the US to some extent, even if they haven't got as far on the digital legislation as the EU has, but the rights, individual rights-based approach as we see in data protection or indeed in online safety, is at the core of it, whereas an SME-focused approach is quite a different concept, even if policymakers in Europe are worried about how SMEs and startups can prosper vis-a-vis some of the, the bigger players. And I guess that brings on to the final question I have, Santi, which is we always hear in Europe about this so-called Brussels effect, and the GDPR has held up for this, that Brussels legislates in tech, but also in other policy areas too. And then often you will see similar laws develop in other parts of the world. And I wanted to ask you about that anyway, but I, but in some ways it seems more than the question of just simply, are you seeing EU replica legislation in the region? It's also, if we are seeing EU replica legislation in the region, and there is this fundamental philosophical difference about what regulation should prioritise, it doesn't strike me that European frameworks are particularly well fitted to the region and what policymakers want to achieve. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think I think happy to kind of discuss both points. It's also you know something I've been kind of looking at and thinking about as well. I think a good place to start is to ask, you know, why is it that there would be kind of the Brussels effects in in Southeast Asia, or you know, there, there definitely has been, but you know, what are kind of can decompose that a little bit. And I think there are two big reasons or two types of how this come about. The first one is because EU is a huge consumer market. And so oftentimes, if you want to do business there, you want to export to Europe, then you have to comply to European rules. And that's where, you know, set the rule of the game. And I think that's probably one of the key reasons why some of Southeast Asian players and market governments kind of comply so that they harmonize some of the rules so that they can still kind of have that kind of market access. And to some extent, I think that's, that's what motivated the GDPR adoption in, in, in places like in Southeast Asia, because they know that if they don't have that kind of standards, 
then it's hard to kind of like go into tap into the European market, which is huge. So I think that's one pillar. But the second one uh, is also where it's it's more it's less reactive and it's more like okay, I I, I think we need to have some laws on this to prevent whether it's online safety to protect consumers or something. And I need some prototypes. I need to look somewhere for kind of where I can learn from. And I think European definitely have that kind of you know soft power thought leadership as well, where they say, okay, that's a natural place I'm going to look at because it seems like a lot of innovations in role there. And that's where they kind of look at there. I think perhaps DSA, digital tax, these are some of the things that they looked at at DMA to some extent where they can... They, they have some problem at home. They're trying to fix it and they just look for solution, look to transplant it. And that usually, I mean, actually in both cases, I agree with your assessment that tend to result in something which is less optimal in Southeast Asia for various reasons. But I think the, one of the key reasons is that sometimes it, it's a wrong timing. We talk about this kind of the need to be very dynamic in terms of how you balance between innovation, promoting innovation and controlling risks. European is definitely, at least today, you know, much more kind of focusing on controlling risks, right? Whereas um, for Southeast Asia, maybe it's not there yet. And, you know, it's still at a stage where you still kind of need a lot of experimentation, a lot of investments, a lot of people trying different business models that will work to solve uh, people who are underserved in finance, in healthcare, in education, and so many other things, right? And so if you kind of tighten the screw too fast, then you end up burn, burning those bridges or, you know, you, you, if you will, you, you're kind of building the guardrails without building the bridge. You know, you need to, you need to build a bridge first and then you do the, the guardrails a little bit later. So, so I think that's kind of like one of the kind of raw sequencing as well, which happened, unfortunately. Uh, second is around sometimes the problem with ability to actually understand the context of how European came up with this loss in the first place and not understanding the kind of the fundamental underpinnings of some of the laws may prevent you from doing uh, copying the law or, you know, transplanting the law correctly. And I, I would probably cite example like GDPR, for example, I think it's very much kind of motivated by rights, right? I think ultimately you want the, you want the consumer to understand that Hey, I have rights over my data. This is my data, not someone else's data. I think that's a very fundamental. It's a movement in some ways, right? But that didn't really quite happen in Southeast Asia, even though they have implemented kind of privacy laws, uh, PDPA, uh, which model a lot of them model out the GPR. It didn't really come with that kind of education and understanding that this is my data. In fact, in a lot of countries, and including in, in Thailand, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what this means. And people focus a lot on, you know, funny examples would be when I go to parties and I take pictures, is that okay? You know, can I post pictures or not? Or do I have to ask permission to take pictures in kind of weddings and that kind of environment? So it much more focus around that. And each individual just become very scared when, when they deal with things. And actually, the, you know, less on the business side. So I think that's kind of missing the point because they didn't really understand what is this law is all about. And thirdly, is ability to enforce it as well, which kind of links with the second point, is that you can write all these laws. And typically what they do is sometimes they, they, type, they make it even stricter than GDPR to become like GDPR plus or similar. And then, and then uh, but, but they don't really have ability or the manpower to really enforce it. 
So it kind of the law is written there, but may not be actual, you know, actual de facto effective regulation. So those are some of the problems that I think I noticed happening with kind of this transplanting regulation from Europe. Doesn't mean it's a, it's a wrong thing to do necessarily, but I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done to kind of like make that kind of, you know, same way we discussed at the beginning that businesses from elsewhere, if you want to take the model and apply in Southeast Asia, you have to localize a lot and understand the local dynamics really well. I think same is true for the regulation as well. I think there are echoes in what you've said in the debate in Europe as well, that idea of the guardrails, putting the guardrails before you have the bridge. I think a lot of people would argue that when you look at artificial intelligence regulation, and particularly some of the provisions we're seeing coming out of the EU's AI Act at the moment, which focus on foundation models and separate regimes when we've only really been used to the potential of foundation models for the last 12 to 18 months in, in reality, is perhaps going too quick. And actually, Europe should be developing its nascent sector in that before it looks to put guardrails around it, which could potentially stifle innovation. Now, I'm not parroting that potentially as my own opinion, but that's something you hear a lot. And on last week's podcast about Davos and the debates that were held there at the World Economic Forum, that was a key theme that came out from our team that were on the ground. So a lot of echoes, a lot of a lot of similarities, a lot of consistencies, I think, in the debates that we're having. Um, but interesting where there, there is that point point of consistency. But look, Santi, thank you so much for that tour de force of taking us through what is a big topics across a big region. So you helped really steer us through what could potentially be a conversation that would go on for hours, if not days. So thanks for joining me today. And for those who've listened to this episode, thanks also for doing so. If you're interested in our analysis of dynamics, not just in the tech sector, but more broadly across the Southeast Asian region. We have a very strong uh, Singapore team, and you can find the details of that team, both in the podcast notes, but also on Global Council's website, which is www.global-council.com. If you want to continue the conversation, colleagues there led by Andrew Yeo would be very, very happy to do so. Thanks for joining and for listening to this episode, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.